Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum. Part 8 Well, in between Lethe and Unui, Dante has to confront two major sources of inspiration, Beatrice's eyes and Beatrice's smile. And he's uh, taken to the eyes by the four cardinal virtues, and they say to him, See that you are not sparing of your gaze before you. We have set those emeralds from which love once had aimed its shafts at you, the two emerald eyes from which Cupid shot his arrows. And Dante says, A thousand longings burning more than flames compelled my eyes to watch the radiant eyes that motionless were still fixed on the griffin. Just like the sun within a mirror, so the double-natured creature gleamed within, now showing one, now the other guise. Pause for a second. This is what is stunning. The imagery here is tremendous. Beatrice is facing Dante, standing by the griffin, looking at the griffin, so that when Dante looks into her eyes, he sees reflected in her eyes the griffin who is the Christ, and the griffin is the the, the twi-natured Christ, the human and divine nature natures of Christ. And in her eyes, he sees the mystery of the incarnation. The mystery of the incarnation is that the divine and the human are commingled. And it is in the eyes of Beatrice that he confronts the mystery of the incarnation. And that's what makes these cantos, I think, so such an important watershed for the Western psyche. And Dante says, "Consider." Re- let, me, let me read this in the Sayers' translation, these next lines in the Sayers' translation. Think, reader, think how marvelous and strange it seemed to me when I beheld the thing itself stand changeless and the image change. What's changeless is the griffin. And what's changing in the eyes of Beatrice is eagle, lion, eagle, lion. Now, Dante will have to proceed into the Paradiso before these things become, they are still sequential, you see. They're, they're still one or the other, one or the other. But they're in the same place, namely Beatrice's eyes. He still needs to move into the place where they will, they will commingle more thoroughly than that. Uh, but a tremendous connection with the mystery of the Incarnation, which is permanence and change. The Godhead is, is unchanging, and all creation is changing. And what Dante sees in the eyes of Beatrice is something that is both perishable and eternal. And then that throws light back on the whole speeches of Beatrice in these last canto and a half. He sees in Beatrice something that is both perishable and eternal at the same time. And therein lies the mystery of the Incarnation. And to me, this image of this sort of triangulation here between Dante, Beatrice, and the image of Christ is tremendously instructive to us with regard to how do we participate in the continuing incarnation? How do we, what role do we play in that economy by which an I am arouses in another the I am 
in him or her. And this imagery suggests that we do that by keeping our eyes on the Christic. Or if we look with that kind of penetration into another's eyes to make sure that their eyes are looking at the Christ. Or if someone is looking at us with that kind of intensity to make sure that we are looking at the Christ. And that is when the, the, uh, the circuit closes and something profound happens. The three theological virtues then come along and say, turn Beatrice your eyes on your faithful one. And then they say to her, unveil your lips to him that he may discern the second beauty that you have kept concealed. And Dante, she unveils her mouth and smiles. And that is the second source of revelation for Dante. He says he is incapable of describing the radiance of that smile, except that he calls it splendor. And splendor is his word for reflected brilliance, so that even the smile is seen as a reflection of the divine and not as coming from itself. So Beatrice is, in so many ways, the feminine Christ, or at least it functions that way. But this imagery suggests that it is because she stands in that, in that position of, of triangulating or reflecting the Christic. Well, Canto 32 starts out uh, with Dante being completely fascinated by the eyes and smiles, smile of Beatrice, and uh, one's reminded of something that Wallace Stevens said. He said, a poet looks at the world as a man looks at a woman. And uh, that's exactly what the three theological virtues have in mind when they tell Dante to, to uh, start, stop looking at her and start looking at everything with the same kind of glance. In other words, now that he's got the, the glance down, he can now take his eyes up and look at the world that way, you see. And they say to him, you look... You stare too fixedly. So it's that kind of looking, but now we must look at everything that way. In, in Canto 29, there was the great pageant, the serene grandeur of that pageant of the, of the uh, tradition representing in the, in, the, in the final analysis the church. And now there's a reference to another pageant that's coming up and you can tell there's a change in the tonality because now we have terms like army, shield, squadron, vanguard, troops. In other words, the poem in terms of its diction is shifting from that other feeling to a feeling of bastion church, the militant church. And uh, a, a nice little touch in that regard is that the procession turns right. Uh, I don't know if you care to pursue that implication, but in any case, um, there are two themes that are now going to be sounded in this canto, and both of them, in some way, can be tied to, to line 37. Beatrice descended from the chariot. And I'll come back to the second of those themes later on. She descends from the chariot, and all those around murmur, Adam as a little symbolic hint of what is happening. And that is, now we won't see the implications of this until later on in the canto, but what is happening is that Beatrice, who is the spirit of the church, the true spirit of the church, she is the spirit of Christianity, has now removed herself 
from the chariot, which is the institutional church. Now, we don't, we don't really get that revealed to us right away. And when Dante gets around to revealing it to us, he does it very, very circumspectly for reasons that we'll want to think about in a few minutes. But in any case, she separates herself from the chariot of the church. They murmur at him, and then they draw around the tree whose every branch has been stripped of flowers and leaves. So a barren tree. And it is a tree that as it grows higher, so its branches spread wider. It is a tree that's inverted in terms of the way trees usually grow. And I want to come back to the why and wherefore of that inversion later on. Something must be said of the tree. There's a tremendous uh, variation in the scholarly opinion about the very symbolisms in Canto 32, particularly with regard to the tree. It is very clearly the tree of the garden. That is to say, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, or in Dante's version of it, the tree of God's justice. It is also associated by Dante very strongly with the empire. And it's very hard to put these two associations together. Scholars tend to in inflect one at the expense of the other. I would suggest we think of it this way. That is the tree of, of knowledge, but the tree of moral knowledge. That is to say, the knowledge of good and evil. And perhaps the way to look at it is that it is divine justice. The tree represents divine justice. The legitimate authority which says you do this and not this. And the empire is, in Dante's understanding of the empire's proper role, the empire is responsible for the administration of justice on earth. That is my best guess at how we might assimilate these two associations which Dante has made to this tree. Then they sing, Blessed are you whose beak does not, O griffin, pluck the sweet-tasting fruit that is forbidden and then afflicts the belly that has eaten. In, in the gospel stories, Jesus was tempted in the desert by the temptations to secular power, to political power, or material wealth. And this hymn on the part of those surrounding the griffin and the chariot is in praise of the, of the Christ, the, the griffin, for not having reached out to take this fruit. Now, the fruit would be, in the Garden of Eden setting, would be uh, the, uh, the appropriation of moral authority to oneself. As opposed, to the, as opposed to listening to the legitimate authority which says do not eat. So at the, so at the Garden of Eden level, the story does that. And then it's associated with Jesus refusing to seize moral, secular, political authority in his ministry. Again, refusing to encroach upon the legitimate administrative function of a secular authority. And now we have in line 49, and turning to the pole shaft he had pulled, he is the griffin, he drew it to the foot of the stripped tree and with a branch of that tree tied the two. So this is the great uh, important image here and that is that the griffin takes the pole, the pole that pulls the, the chariot is the cross. And so he pulls the chariot, which is the church, to the tree, which is the empire but a barren one, 
or it is, let's say, after the fall of Adam, it is the it is a a uh, moral authority that has been made barren or uh, despoiled. He takes the the cross, by the way, by in in terms of medieval legend, was made from the wood of the tree in the garden. So in in many ways, this is a reuniting of what has been before. As a matter of fact, this term "stripped tree" really means "widowed tree." So this is this is the bringing together, in the appropriate way, that is to say, connected by the cross, of the tree of the empire, the, the chariot of the church. And this embodies, I think, Dante's transcendent hope for what we might call Western civilization. That is to say, that a legitimate administ- administrative authority in terms of, let's say, the empire, could be connected via the mystery of the cross to the spiritual authority of the church. And Dante's hope was that these two otherwise uh, contentious seats of authority, if they could be brought together in that way, there would be a great flowering of Western civilization. That was his hope. So we might see it as a kind of archetypal reconciliation between what? Between prophetic religion and the social administration of the moral precepts or between mercy and justice or between the religious and moral authorities, the secular and the sacred. And that it is the cross that, that causes this reconciliation to take place. The cross is the symbol, the transcendent symbol of reconciliation and this corresponds, I think, to something that Jung calls the transcendent function. Let me read this passage that follows on. So the tree whose boughs before had been so solitary, that is to say, stripped of leaves, was now renewed, showing a tint that was less than rose, more than violet. Now that, of course, is also the color of an apple blossom, and this is going to be likened to an apple tree because that's also a legend that the Messiah was Take, taken from a, a passage in the Song of Songs, one of the one of the symbols was that the Messiah was like an apple tree in in blossom. So it is that is the color. This between less than rose and more than violet is the color of perhaps the apple blossom. But I think there's more to it than this. As Jung would say, the transcendent function is that which causes a reconciliation which is greater than the sum of its parts, which is more mysterious than the sum of its parts. It is not a compromise. It is a marriage. Remember, we're just watching the tree bloom now. The tree is what's blooming, and it blooms less than rose and more than violet. My take on this is that we know that red is the color of Christian love, and purple is the color of royalty, or what we might call government. And that it is less than rose and more than violet to me suggests a transcendent function symbolized by something that, it, that may not be full gospel values, but at the same time is more than merely government. And that is all one can hope for in the secular order. That itself is a blossoming. And now the second theme begins to be sounded very slightly, so slightly it's hard to notice. I did not understand the hymn that they then sang, it is not sung here on this earth. So beautiful blossoming of the tree under these conditions of reconciliation. But then Dante admits this doesn't really happen on earth.
and then he begins to get drowsy and he falls asleep and he says, I fell asleep and he uses the simile of the, the Argos um, and I won't go into the story of how Io became a heifer. Well, anyway, Io became a heifer because she had a, because she and uh, Zeus and she had an affair. It's a long story. Zeus, Hera, Hera, Zeus's jealous wife, sent sent Argos, the hundred-eyed monster, to watch Io to make sure that nobody came along and changed her back into a beautiful woman. And Zeus then sent Hermes down to put. Uh, Argos to sleep. Well, he actually puts him to death. He does, it's hard to put him to sleep because he sleeps some of those eyes and then keeps the others open, see? Well, Hermes came down and played on his pipe and told a story. And the story he told to Argos was the story of Syrinx. And the story of Syrinx is a story about Hermes himself. That is to say, he had a great desire for this nymph, Syrinx, and he chased her. And she fled to the river's edge. And right at the river's edge, right when he thought he had her, she changed into a reed growing among the reeds. And he plucked it and made of it a pipe and played the pipe and became, in many ways, Pan. Well, one doesn't even stop to notice the simile that's Im embedded in the story. The simile is that desire that is frustrated can be changed into music, can be made into soul, that soulfulness can be the result of a longing that is frustrated. I, I mention that because that's another sub-theme that's being played out here. In any case, Dante falls asleep. And then he hears a, a voice that rent the veil of sleep, rise up, what are you doing? And he likens this to the transfiguration story in the gospel. Peter, John, and James, when brought to see the blossoms of the apple tree, again, that's that reference to the Song of Songs. Uh, let me make a little point here. The apple tree is also by legend, the tree in the Garden of Eden. And now the Song of Solomon is saying the Messiah will be a blooming apple tree. And, now, and Christian symbolism understands the cross to be a, a, a branch of the tree. All in all, what you get here is, is a, almost... A, and the apple then, the eating of the apple, the second eating of the apple is the Eucharistic apple. So all of these things are being harmonized into this strange amalgam almost to, to suggest that the Eucharist is the hair of the dog that bit you. Dante wakes up. The, uh, Peter, James, and John fell on their face. And then they looked up and they noticed that everything was back to normal. That, that Moses and Elijah were gone. That Jesus' garments were no longer radiant. And life had returned to normal. Now it should be. It, it's important to note here that story in the gospel is a is a narrative designed to explain an experience, designed to uh, to point to an experience. The experience was the first time the closest friends of Jesus began the first uh, strong hint they had of the real significance of his life, and and 
and sudden overwhelming sense of, my God, this guy's life may be the life we've been waiting to witness. And the way that is put into a narrative is the transfiguration story. And then, of course, it's the next day and they're on the road and they wake up and look and it seems like an ordinary guy again. Likewise for Dante, he has just had this great vision of what it might be, the blooming tree, what it might be. And then he falls asleep and is awakened and he says, where's Beatrice? Everything is back to normal. And she is sitting under the boughs of the tree, on the root of the tree, and all the rest, the great procession of the griffin and all of that elaborate procession has gone off to heaven. And she is having to take refuge under the branches of the tree. She is now, remember, the spirit, the true spirit of the church. And the true spirit of the church is now having to take refuge under the branches of the tree. For what reason? We're not quite sure until we... It says, line 94, she sat alone and upon the simple ground left there as guardian of the chariots. So she's under the branches of the, of the tree guarding the chariot in a very humble position. And uh, one thinks of the great mystics of the Middle Ages who were so marginal in some ways in terms of both the empire and the church. But they, there they were in that humble surrounding, guarding the true church, being the true spirits of it. And then we, begin, then we get this, this <clears throat> pageant, in a, in a way, the, the destructive pageant, beginning line 112. It's in seven scenes, and I'll, I'll pause on each one of them. The bird of Jove, that's an eagle representing the empire, the bird of Jove that swooped down through the tree, tearing the bark as well as the new leaves and the new flowering, it struck the chariot with all its force. The chariot twisted like a ship that's crossed by seas that now storm starboard and now port. First scene is of the early uh, empire's persecution of the early church. And notice that the, pers that the instrument of persecution, which is the eagle, causes very little damage to the church. A great insight. Persecution doesn't damage the church. The real spirit of the church. It does, ironically, damage to the tree of the moral authority. That is to say, it, it corrupts that in some way. But the church survives that. The second scene, I then saw as it leaped into the body of the triumphal car a fox that seemed to lack all honest nourishment. But as she railed against its squalid sins, my lady forced that fox to flight as quick as stripped of flesh its bones permitted it. And this is the attack of heresy. And Dante probably has in mind here the Gnostic heresy because these, the Gnostics were uh, regarded the flesh as, uh, as un as unredeemable, as corrupt, uh, inherently corrupt. And here he's talking about this fox that is stripped of flesh and so on. So notice, heresy is easy. Beatrice is able to handle heresy with no problem. So persecution and heresy, no serious damage to the church. Scene three, however, then I could see the eagle plunge again down through the tree into the chariot and leave it feathered with its plumage. 
And just like a voice from an embittered heart, a voice issued from heaven saying this, Oh, my small ship, your freight is wickedness. And that, that is the voice of Peter. It says small bark. It's, it's, it's the, sh- the ship of the church. And what Dante is talking about here is what he regarded as the great corrupting uh, event, which was what was called the gift of Constantine. Constantine was converted to Christianity. He then converted the empire to Christianity. And in the 8th century, there was a forged document called the Gift of Constantine in which Constantine was reputed to have given political authority and, and, uh, and authority over the material realm in the Western Church to the Bishop of Rome. And that was proved a, for, a forgery after Dante's time. But Dante regards the gift of Constantine as seriously corrupting the church. And so notice that the chariot is covered with feathers, the feathers of the empire and to, to some extent the feathers of luxury, of material wealth. And Jesus had said, speaking of his cross, my yoke is light. My yoke is easy, my burden light. And Peter says of feathers that your freight is wickedness. So the cross is light and the feathers of luxury and wealth and power are heavy. And that is a serious corruption of the church. And the, sa- the next one, scene four, is the archetypal schismatic. Then did the ground between two realms seem to me to open from the earth. A dragon emerged. It drove its tail up through the chariot. And like a wasp, when it retracts its sting, drawing its venomed tail back to itself, it dragged part of the bottom off and went, it way, went its way undulating. Well, that's the, the schisms that haunted the church. Dante's probably talking about uh, Mohammedanism, but uh, perhaps also the Eastern schism. Now, scene five is further imperial favors from, um, from Charlemagne and Pepin and others. And what was left was covered with eagle's plumes, perhaps offered with sound and kind intent, much as grass covers fertile ground. And the pole shaft and both wheels were recovered in less time than mouth must be kept open when one sighs. It's a beautiful simile to let you know what the emotional comment upon it all is. And what happens is that the feathers uh, come to cover the pole shaft, which is the cross, and the, and the wheels of the chariot. Symbolic implication is that the church has lost any effective contact with the mystery of the cross and sacrifice. And likewise, the church has ceased to become a, a vehicle that is in journey because now the wheels are all covered with feathers. It has become a status, a fixed place, a bastion church and not a pilgrim church. And finally, the archetypal culmination of it, and then we'll return the final scene to what happens in Dante's day, the final culmination is transfigured so the saintly instrument grew heads and these are heads out of the uh, out of book of revelations chapter 13 seven heads and 10 horns the final corruption of it all the ultimate symbol 
of abomination. And scene seven is the juicy one, which is a comment on what's happened in Dante's time. Just like a fortress set, set on a steep slope. Now remember, this is, a, this is a, supposed to be a pilgrim church being, being drawn by the griffin through history. And now we have this image of this fortress church, uh, rich and powerful politically in world's, worldly terms, sitting on a high uh, fortification. Securely seated there, ungirt a whore, as to say, loose of bodice, set the whore, whose eyes were quick to rove, appeared to me. I saw at her side erect a giant who seemed to serve as her custodian. The whore is uh, the personification of the church and or the personification of the pope. And the giant is the personification of the French monarchy, Philip the Fair of France. And they again again embraced each other. But when she turned her wandering wanton eyes to me, then that ferocious Amador beat her from head to foot. And that's the story of how Philip the Fair mistreated Boniface VIII, however much Dante hated Boniface VIII. Then swollen with suspicion, fierce with anger, he untied the chariot-made monster, dragging it into the woods so that I could, I could not see either the whore or the strange chariot beast. And this is a reference to the taking of the papacy to Avignon, which happened in 1305. And uh, Dante regarded that as the final um, crisis of the church, abomination of the church. Well, in Canto 33, before Dante and Beatrice take their launch up into the, the into paradise, there is a commentary on what has just taken place. Uh, weeping women singing, that is to say the virtues, theological and cardinal, singing Deus venerunt gentes, singing in the language of the church, Latin, from Psalm 79, O God, the heathens are come. And that line in Psalm 79 is completed, O God, the heathens are come into your inheritance. And this is a commentary on what has just happened with the corruption of the church. At this, sighing and full of pity, Beatrice was changed. She listened, grieving little less than Mary when beneath the cross she wept. So this is a second crucifixion which is the corruption of the church by material and political power and wealth. The second Babylonian captivity now in, in Avignon. And then Beatrice says in Latin, again the language of the church, Beatrice is the spirit of the true church. She, she quotes in Latin the passage from John chapter 16, a little while and you will not see me, yet again in a little while and you shall see me. And this really is the definition of faith in the spirit of the church, which is to say that this corruption, part of which is symbolized by the fact that the spirit of the church, namely Beatrice, has departed from the charity of the church, 
that this corruption itself will pass so that Dante both understands that the church is dead and that it will come again. This too shall pass, he says. Then she, this is Beatrice, set all the seven nymphs in front of her and signaled me, the lady and the sage who had remained, to move behind her, so she advanced. So what we have here is a new procession. Remember the procession of the great elaborate procession of the church in Canto 29? And now we have a new procession, very much more modest, with only a handful of attendants, namely the seven virtues, Matilda, Dante, and Statius, the poet, and then Beatrice. Beatrice in the, in the place in this procession which the chariot uh, had in the original procession. And so we have a new pageant of the church, which is to say, under these historical circumstances, under this kind of corruption of the institutional church, the real church, the spirit of the true church, is taking place in this more modest enterprise which is happening marginal to that, to that which is corrupted. And then Beatrice <clears throat> speaks in oracular ways. She speaks with the Vatic voice, so to speak. She speaks in strange riddles. She says in one place, And what I tell you, as dark as Sphinx and Themis, may leave you less convinced because, like these, it, it tires the intellect with quandary. The Sphinx and Themis is a reference to the story of, of um, Oedipus and the question of the Sphinx posing riddles. She says, I'm going to speak in riddles. And we'll ask our, ourselves the question, why is she going to speak in riddles? Dante wants to know why she's going to speak in riddles. Well, I'll tell you why. She says in one place, know that the vessel which the serpent broke, that's the chariot which the serpent of, of, of uh, schism has uh, destroyed, know that the vessel which the serpent broke was and is not. Now, it's very easy to slide over that line because she, it is tucked away in this strange oracular kind of canto. The vessel which the serpent broke was and is not. That's the church. It was and is not. And now we get some take on, another take on Beatrice. Beatrice is saying, I am, uh, in the earlier canto. The spirit of the church looks at the institutional church and says it was and is not. And that's as stern a condemnation of the situation as you can get. The church in its institutional form uh, no longer exists as, as, true, as a true Christian movement. But you must remember that Beatrice has, are, has just been singing yet again in a little while and you shall see me. So it, is not, it does not exist and therefore Dante walks away from it. It is it does not exist. Uh, but out of these ashes too will return that spirit. She says to Dante... Take note, you're not going to understand this. You're too stupid to understand what I'm saying, but just transmit it to the people on earth because they need to know it. She says in line 64, Your intellect's asleep if it can't see how singular is the cause that makes that tree so tall and makes it grow invertedly. Remember I said we we're going to talk a minute about the tree growing invertedly. Early, lower down on the slopes of the Purgatorio, we found out that the tree where the gluttons were grows invertedly because their desire 
was being sated at too low a level. And if the tree that had this luscious fruit on it could cause them to desire more and at the same time frustrate their desire, they might be ready for a religious life. And this is so in keeping with Dante's understanding. So that the tree here of moral authority is such that it creates taboos which awaken desires. The taboos themselves awaken desires and frustrate the consummation of those desires and increase the, that, that energy, which is excess libido, to the point where a true religious life might begin. I think the way to look at this is the following. A moral authority is in the business of, of prohibiting some direct expression of one's urges. And if the urges cannot be directly expressed, they can be, they can be matured into desires and then longings instead of just urges, just hormonal or biological or survival urges. The prohibition against expressing those directly. You want to murder the SOB? You can't. You want to jump into bed immediately with her? You can't, etc., etc., etc. The urges are frustrated, and so the urge can be transformed from urge to desire to longing. And at the point when it becomes longing, then the religious institution has an opportunity to make some suggestions about the matter. And that, I think, is why this tree is inverted. It is the tree of moral authority, but it's, it is a preliminary function in terms of religious life, is to create that excess libido, which can then be available for, religious, uh, for the religious life. So that Freud is right about that which civilizes does, does cause discontents. But the discontent, that's just another way of looking at it, let's put a pejorative spin on it. The discontent is simply that unlived life which is now available for religious life. It can be finally the raw material of consciousness and depth and meaning and love and all the things that the religious authority uh, offers some guide with regard to. Well, as briefly as I can, I'd like to talk about the scandal that's in the middle of this canto in the sense that uh, uh, Beatrice over and over again says Dante's too, too stupid to understand what she's saying. That is a, that's strategic for Dante because it allows him to write a poem in which there are things said which he will not be blamed for. Because in the poem that says them, he is accused of not being able to understand them and simply for serving as the, uh, as the one who takes the dictation down. And he is going to say some things in this poem that if one reads it carefully, uh, will not uh, particularly, uh, uh, will, will not uh, cause the censors uh, or the inquisitors to be happy with him. So he has very strategically couched it in very oracular terms. And then, uh, in addition to that, I had Beatrice say, well, you're obviously not understanding this, just write it down. Why doesn't he understand what she has said? The, 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 the hardest thing she said is that the church was and is not. You don't say that in the early 14th century, by the way, with impunity. Now, why, she says, you can't understand it. Why can't you understand it? And here are the reasons, beginning line 67. 
if, like the waters of the Elsa, your vain thoughts did not encrust your mind, so the Elsa is a river in Tuscany, the, so I, she's saying here, I think, the Tuscan heritage, the river in Tuscany was so, uh, had so many minerals and whatnot in it that it caused little crustaceans to form on the, the rocks on its banks or the, or the reeds and so on growing in the, at the, in the shallows. I think she's saying that Tuscany was a Guelph, pretty much a Guelph stronghold. Guelph was the was the pro-papal uh, party uh, in Italy, and I think she's saying your parochial upbringing in Tuscany has ill prepared you for the hard truth that is being laid before you, and the parochial upbringing was a pro-papal. Uh, atmosphere in Tuscan. Second image. If your delight in them were not like Pyramus staining the mulberry, you'd recognize that in that tree's form and height the moral sense God's justice had when he forbade trespass. So here's the image now again of, of Pyramus and Thisbe. Pyramus chose to, this is Romeo and Juliet kind of an image, Pyramus chose to die rather than experience the heartbreak of losing Thisbe. In other words, he chose, uh, Joseph Chilton Pierce in the book called Crack and Cosmic Egg says, if most people were forced to choose between dying and having their reigning paradigm perish before their eyes, they would rather die. And Beatrice says that Dante is like Pyramus, that he would rather inflict a mortal wound than suffer the heartbreak of seeing that which he loves so dearly die. There's a story about, which is true of Dante and in, in many, is helpful here, a story about E.A. Robinson in, the, in a biography of his life by Charles Smith. Smith says that Robinson fell in love with Emma, a woman named Emma, Emma later fell in love with Robinson's brother Herman and married him. And Smith says, in an interesting turn of phrase, he says that when Emma became engaged to Robinson's brother Herman, while Robinson was uh, in sitting alone in his vacation cottage at Booth Bay Harbor, quote, American literature turned a corner. It's a beautiful image of being willing to suffer the heartbreak. And the Pyramus is the one who cannot suffer that heartbreak. Dante learned to suffer it via Beatrice early in his life. And now she's saying there is another beloved that is going to die before your very eyes and you cannot tolerate it. That's why you don't understand what I'm telling you. Okay? The third one is the clincher. But since I see your intellect is made of stone and petrified, grown so opaque, the light of what I say has left you dazed. And we look at this language and we find out that his, that his consciousness, that's what it means, the intellect here, his consciousness is made of stone and petrified. The Italian words are pietra and impetrato. Both of those, the root word of those is Peter. Upon this rock I will build my church. Very oracular-like language is saying, your consciousness is too petrine. 
to appreciate what you are witnessing. And what you are witnessing is that that church was and is not. And during the Babylonian exile, the true spirit of that church is abroad and it is not in the institution anymore. It will come back and be in the institution one day, but it is not there now. And if you look to the institution, you will not find church. Now, this is a 14th century version of what Thomas Kuhn wrote about in the 50s, this paradigm shift. It's, it's Beatrice saying to Dante that the paradigm that you have lived with, which is the Petrine paradigm in terms of your Tuscany education, in terms of your, your Petrine consciousness, is such that prevents you from recognizing what is in fact true, and that is that the real church is not in the institution anymore. Now, this is not, this is, remember, and yet again in a little while, and you shall see me. Dante's faith is not to cut and run, but at the same time it is a recognition that it is not there right now. He drank of Unui. He drank of Unui, the river that revives the power that is faint in him. And then, this passage about from the holy wave returned to Beatrice, remade as new trees are renewed when they bring forth new boughs. Beatrice has, been, has taken the place of the chair of the church and now Dante is like a new tree. So you get the second part of the symbolism. And Dante and Beatrice now go into paradise. Now Dante has been crowned and mitered in the sense that both the tree and the, and the chariot have been, he has, has taken them inside. Both of those authorities, the church and the empire, he's taken inside. But in, in regard to his relationship with Beatrice, he has become, this is why Virgil is the perfect uh, tutor for him. He has, he has come to be a representative of what the empire could be. And she has become come to be the representative of of the spirit of the church, and he the spirit of of the of the secular authority. Now, I would never want to reduce the Paradiso to that because it's ever so much more interesting than that. But it's quite clear that Dante is, in at the very end of the Purgatorio, he's sounding that one little note, likening himself renewed to the essence of that tree, and Beatrice, in her essence, to be the essence of the chariot. And the great hope is that they can be wedded through the cross. And I, I think of this side of the river Unui, one looks back, and it, I don't know how you do it, there, we all have probably have our ways, where you, there's a little groan, you think of that, you think of that scene, or you think of that that episode in your life and if you're alone like taking a shower where nobody else can hear you you go oh. after Unui one thinks about that episode say with a little chuckle uh, you know a, sh a kind of a 
shaking the head. Human alter, and a little, yeah, human alter, a little chuckle. And then that's it. This concludes Reflections on Dante's Purgatorio. If you would like to learn more about the work of the Cornerstone Forum, please visit our website at cornerstoneforum.org. That's cornerstoneforum, all one word, dot O-R-G. Thank you for your interest in our work.